Hello, Global Startup Tribe, and welcome to another episode from the Global Startup Movement, where every week we bring you conversations, insights, and innovation highlights for emerging startup ecosystems all around the world. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're featuring another insight compilation episode, this time on the Asia-Pacific region. It's a region with about seven of the top 25 startup ecosystems in the world, including Sydney, Bangalore, Singapore, Tokyo, and New Delhi. It's a region that's completely dominated by China economically and technologically, and both Shanghai and Beijing are really becoming global powerhouses and trending towards threatening Silicon Valley's long-held dominance at number one. Uh, So naturally, China is where we're going to start this off. Now, I used to believe that once an economy gets to the size of China or uh, the US, Japan, Germany, your large corporates are going to inevitably run into the problem of the innovator's dilemma. Uh, This means that really in the modern world, once you become a market leader, technologies and industries are changing so fast that uh, you can't secure your market leadership for too long and you end up facing the dilemma of disrupting your own market segment yourself or having to fight against startups that are trying to do that themselves. Well, one thing that large Chinese companies do get right is their solution to this problem, uh, which our past guest William Bao Bean from China Accelerator expands on, and this clip will really help you wrap your mind around what it's like to do business in the Chinese market. Yeah, so a lot of people look, oh, these big Chinese companies all eat 10 cents. They think about them as a company in the U.S. sense, or even like the Chinese government. They think about the, the Chinese government as one entity, where in fact, within these companies, there's lots of companies within inside the companies. So, you know, back four or five years ago, there's 519 product groups in, in Tencent. Now there's probably over a thousand. And each of these product groups uh, is run like a separate startup. So you have a product manager uh, or two, and they're sort of like the CEO, they have a budget, they have a team, and they're going after a, a particular challenge. And they can do whatever they want it, they want to do in order to make that a success. And so that could mean crushing a independent startup and taking market share from them. It also could mean going head to head with another company within Tencent or another group within Alibaba. And so this uh, means that you do not have the innovator's dilemma. There's no dilemma because uh, you're always cannibalizing your own markets. You're always cannibalizing your own almost competitive products. And uh, there's less cross promotion. So uh, companies like Tencent had to create internal structures where one group could actually work with the other. But generally, they're very, very, very independent uh, and they're not particularly cooperative. And as a result, you've got WeChat, which started off as a, you know, a couple person group you know, six, seven years ago uh, and is now you know, probably a two, three hundred billion dollar valued within the Tencent company. And that's, that's very, very, very fast you end up uh, with a sort of lean startup applied at scale. And uh, a lot of corporates and a lot of Western companies don't know how to, how to react to this because the competition here moves so, so quickly. So, and then that's starting to bleed out into the rest of the world. So you have like uh, the first battle, which was level playing field. Everybody had about the same amount of money was DD versus Uber. When Uber came into China, they spent about $2 billion. Didi spent about $2 billion, give or take. The government didn't come down on either side one way or the other. They, they actually both uh, tried to uh, push back in different provinces on both of those companies relatively equally. And you know, Uber fought Didi basically to a draw. So that's the best outcome that we've seen an in, uh, international player coming in versus a local player. 
Now, Didi learned a lot from that experience because Uber was using mad like personalization to have really, really, really good tech people. And so Didi learned from that and has you know, taken many steps further. And now Didi is going out into other markets. So they, they've gone into Brazil. They did a, a investment in 99. They airdropped 57 engineers into Brazil, helped that company rebuild its tech platform from the bottom up. And then, you know, within less than a year about, they're like, hey, well, this is going pretty well. We're going to buy the company. So DD then bought 99 and they're the number one car sharing platform in, in, in Brazil now. So you're seeing um, the personalization uh, and uh, I guess people call it AI, but it's, it's mostly machine learning uh, that's driving personalization. So China might not be ahead in AI overall, certainly not probably in the academic uh, sphere, but in terms of implementing it in everyday products that get to everyday people, if you're not using personalization, technology-driven personalization, which is using personal data uh, to provide a better user experience, if you're not using that, you're not competitive in this market. And uh, what happens when Chinese-backed, Chinese-invested companies in other markets like India and Indonesia, well, they get like this sort of, not just a cash infusion, but they get a tech infusion. And the other players on the ground, whether it be the U.S. players or even the local players backed by like SoftBank Vision Fund, they, they have difficulty competing against not just the Chinese capital coming into uh, emerging markets, but also uh, the tech. You know, I'll give you an example. So Didi, uh, which is the Chinese Uber, you know, I just moved uh, and I live in like a little compound. You know, I have a house and there's a wall around it. And the address is for the compound, not for my house. So, you know, I, I put the typed in the address to my house and it stops at the gate. But I don't live at the gate. I live in my house. So the driver kept on driving in, dropping me off at my door, dropping me off on my door. After a week, Didi knew that I didn't live at the gate, that I lived inside. And so it would automatically take me to my house. The second regional powerhouse in the Asia-Pacific region is India. And in my opinion, India has some of the most exciting startup ecosystems in the entire region, including Bangalore and New Delhi as really the big two. One of the most knowledgeable people that I've found on India's tech industry, uh, someone that I actually connected with through a DM on Twitter, uh, his name is Sajith Pai. He's a VC at Bloom Ventures, which is one of the leading early stage VCs in India. I've been following his tweets about Indian startups for a while and came across one blog post in particular that uh, I just found extremely fascinating and motivated me to reach out to him. And so in this blog post, he broke down India's economy into three different tiers of income levels and lifestyle uh, that he calls India 1, India 2, and India 3. And so I had him on the podcast. We dove deeper into that. So here's Sajith breaking that down for us, which I think really paints a clear picture on the current opportunities and state of the ecosystem. I like to write a lot. Uh, I like to write and think through uh, what's happening. And uh, a couple of my logs have got uh, reasonable traction within the startup ecosystem, especially a framework where I look at India and look at in terms of India 1, India 2, and India 3. So just to kind of elaborate, India 1 is the most developed part of India. That's roughly about 100 million large, sort of like Mexico, similar per capita income, Mexico, Turkey, so $10,000 per household, you know, that level, very comfortable with the internet, English speaking, that's important as well. The next 100 million is a bit like Philippines, barring the fact that they don't speak good English. Uh, they just got onto the internet, roughly $3,000 per capita income. That's the next 100 million. And after that, India is, uh, is interesting because it's got a very wealthy India, but it's also got a very large poor India. And that's about a billion large. And they're really 
not even $1,000 per capita income. That's a bit more like reasonably compares with, say, the underdeveloped parts of Africa. So that's that's the way I kind of like to look at India. And that metaphor has become increasingly useful and valuable for a whole bunch of startups and VCs exploring the Indian ecosystem. So that's, that's, that's broadly. So India has got enormously exciting in the last two to three years. But the excitement has been bubbling for a while. And uh, right now we are seeing a whole host of high quality startups. The number of unicorns out of India has kind of doubled. Last year we had eight, including exciting B2B startups. And what's interesting is we begin to see companies which have scaled from zero to unicorn status in three years. Udan, for example, is a fascinating B2B startup, sort of like the Amazon of B2B e-commerce in India. We're beginning to see a whole host of these startups emerge to attack uniquely Indian problems, and they're beginning to really scale fast. Southeast Asia is the next area in the region with very unique and exciting startup ecosystems across Asia-Pacific. Singapore is the only ecosystem in this region that is really consistently ranked in the top 15 globally. Uh, However, Indonesia, Thailand, and Vietnam are cultivating their own emerging ecosystems that can easily break into the top 25 over the next five years. Uh, Southeast Asian startups face the common problem of market fragmentation, but also a fragmented landscape for raising early-stage capital. Our next insight comes from Justin Hall, who is a partner at Golden Gate Ventures. He moved to Southeast Asia in 2011, right at the start of this recent wave of startups. Uh, Golden Gate is an early-stage VC with 30 investments across seven countries in the region, so they've seen just about everything. Here's Justin with some insight into how the successful startups in their portfolio have scaled across the region. It really comes down to two things. One is they get their home market right. They, they've taken over their home market, you know, top number one, two, or three. So they have their home in order and that when they are ready to expand, they don't skimp on hiring the best local talent, but they don't try to export their entire business model over. They know that some degree of localization will be required, whether that means localizing the business model or taking advantage of certain conditions on the ground to differentiate themselves in that particular market. Or most commonly, they will hire somebody on the ground that has years experience, particularly in doing business in that country. Scaling across Southeast Asia requires a pretty significant degree of localization. And uh, Southeast Asians have kind of matured to the point where they understand they really need to localize well. Uh, It's distinct from kind of the U.S. approach where when they expand it to another market, they bring their own people, they bring their own business model, and they kind of grab their competition into the dust. Uh, In Southeast Asia, it's a little bit more synergistic. Like when they expand into another market, they need to change their business model and their team and their management practices to sufficiently reflect local conditions. They will raise locally first. You know, they'll raise their seed from a prominent local fund, of which there are actually quite a a few, especially in Singapore and Indonesia. When they raise Series A, if their intention is to actually go outside of their home market, and that's the case 75% of the time, they will often tap into a regional fund. And that regional fund will have experience and a presence, portfolio-wise, across the region. And, and yeah, that's a that's a typical route that many, many successful startups uh, will go. Start locally, then go regional. If I've learned one thing about building successful teams in the global startup ecosystem, it's that countries that have a combination of great engineering talent and low-cost labor 
are really the best locations to build a development team. And for years, this has been the case in Eastern European region. That's why you've heard about all these outsourcing dev shops that are based in, you know, Ukraine or Poland. Uh, however, costs in these countries have started to rise. And that's actually resulting in a growing number of engineers in the region that are either going to work for a big tech company like Google or raising money for their own startup instead of simply just working for or running an outsource agency development shop model. Uh, this is a similar trajectory to countries in the Caspian Sea region of western part of Asia, which include Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Armenia, and, and many more. Uh, but these countries' diasporas are crucial to their ecosystem development right now. And these countries need diaspora angel investors, diaspora entrepreneurs to come back home and invest time, money, and resources into developing the country's domestic startup ecosystem. Nina Ajachan from Index Ventures and Alicia Garabidian from Samsung Next Ventures were both part of a Armenian diaspora roundtable that we organized on the podcast about a year and a half ago uh, to really talk through what's needed in the Caspian Sea countries to uh, advance to the next stage in their startup ecosystem development. Just based on the strong math and science and STEM programs in Armenia, I would say we've over-indexed on technical talent. There's mm -hmm. excellent engineers. There are so many PhDs in data science and, you know, and some of the hot areas of technology that here in Silicon Valley, people are dying to find engineers for. <clears throat> but they're really, you know, I would say the weak spot is more on the customer facing market segmentation, go to market strategy, more of the business development side. And so for us, the perfect combination is when we have a CEO here that really has lived and breathed, you know, the U.S. ecosystem, let's say, or the customer segment they're going after, and they actually hire their entire technical talent in Armenia, not as an outsource, but truly as bringing them in as a team. You know, I think Pixar has been a phenomenal example of this. Hovhannes Avoyan started the company in Armenia. He later moved all of his business um, headquarters here in the United States. You know, he received money from Sequoia. He still has, I think, hundreds of engineers operating in Armenia as full-time employees. And it's been a really great model that worked. Teamable is another great example. Um, the company was originally started in Armenia. One of the co-founders came here. They brought on a CEO that had experience here in the United States. And they've been able to successfully have the model where the product team and engineering team sits in Armenia. So we think those are some great examples that highlight and really, you know, double down on the strength there, but also augment that with, again, the diasporan community outside. And finally, we can't talk Asia Pacific without discussing Australia. Sydney is a pretty definitive top 20 global startup ecosystem, particularly for the surprisingly advanced fintech industry they have there. The foundations for that was actually set about 12 years ago during the global financial crisis. Here's Simon Kant, the co-founder at reInventure Group and member of the Treasurer's Fintech Advisor Group on how that happened and what it means for fintech in Australia relative to the rest of the region. So there's a couple of things that, that, are, that are worth bearing in mind. Most of the banks globally went through a huge sort of fundamental re-engineering as a result of the global financial crisis. You know, a number of the major banks globally were at some level, you know, nationalized or bought out and then had to sort of reestablish their, their core financial footings. The Australian banks didn't go through any of that. 
So the Australian banks came through the GFC pretty unscathed. And as a result, ever since the GFC, they have continued to invest in innovation. Our experience going around the world and looking at other ecosystems is that as far as incumbent banks are concerned, Australian banks are actually among the most innovative we've seen in the world. And i got to say, you know, when we come to the US and we still have to sign credit card state receipts and things like that, we just think, how is it that, you know, in one of the most advanced countries, some of these core technologies in Australia, it's all tap and go now. You know, why haven't they had the same take up here as perhaps they have in Australia? And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is, is what I've just talked about. The Australian banks didn't go through that GFC. The other is we're a very concentrated market, which means that once the four banks decides, d- decide that they want to bring through a technology, it pretty much becomes ubiquitous. So for that reason, I think they have actually been pretty good innovators. That being said, you know, good innovation for an incumbent is always still a long way from the edge of possibilities, really exploring what's possible with technology. So the ecosystem is continuing, that the startup ecosystem is continuing to throw up all sorts of new models and new experiments and, and new possibilities for how technology can make financial services easier, more seamless, um, make people better informed. But the bar is definitely higher, I think, for fintechs in Australia, and hopefully that makes them stronger over time. So there you have another top five insights compilation diving into specific regions within the global startup ecosystem. If you haven't already, be sure to join our global startup tribe by subscribing to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or activating the global startup movement scale on your Amazon Alexa. And we'll see you again next Tuesday for another episode from the global startup movement.